Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So welcome to episode three of the Core Kinetic podcast. And this time I'm joined by two of my good friends that I've had the pleasure of knowing for a number of years and sharing lots of jokes and fireside chats and just shooting the shit, really. Um, and that's Gilletta Belton and Keith Meldrum. Um, guys, could I just ask you quickly to give um, a little rundown on who you are, what you do, that kind of thing, before we dive into the to the meat of it all? So, Gilletta, you could just kind of tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. That would be fantastic. Sure. So um, I guess you could call me a pain patient advocate, and that's a lot of the work that I do now. So I do a lot of um, presentations and, and teaching from the lived experience perspective. And I'm also the, the co-chair of the International Association for the Study of Pain's Global Alliance of Pain Patient Advocates Task Force, which Keith is also a part of. Um, where that is about integrating the lived experience into the study, research, education of pain into achieving IASP's mission. Um, so that's a really cool thing. And then I'm also the, the first patient and public partnership editor for the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. So those are my primary roles right now. I still have my blog, mycupofjoe.com. I haven't been as active on that in the last couple of years, but with this pandemic, I hope to get back to writing more. Um, and I got into all of this work based on my own experiences living with chronic pain, which started back in January of 2010 when I was working as a firefighter paramedic. Yeah, and we're going to kind of come on to that a little bit, I think, um, and when we get into the, the meat and the bones of it all. Um, I've had the pleasure of hearing Gillette speak a number of times, and it's always uh, very insightful, hence why I've uh, asked her to come on. And also, Keith, Mr. Meldrum, could you um, just introduce yourself for, for the listeners as well, please? Oh, thanks, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And it's always a pleasure to uh, to work with uh, my good friend, Joe. Um, so like like Joe and many others, I'm a person that uh, lives with chronic pain. Um, I have since uh, August of 86 following a, a motor vehicle accident. Um, but it was really in probably around 2011, 2012, that I started to focus um, a lot of my energy into uh, pain advocacy. Um, and we will maybe touch on a little bit of that later as how I got to that point. But um, I spent six years on a, a leading nonprofit here in British Columbia in Canada called Pain BC that um, works very hard and advocates for um, healthcare system change and helping people um, learn to live better with pain. Um, so after completing six years as uh, an executive member of that board, I then turned my attention into doing um, some personal pain advocacy, and that's when I got connected with, um, as Joe mentioned, the International Association for the Study of Pain, where she's the co-chair of the Global Alliance of Pain and Patient Advocates. I'm one of the members. I get to work with her on that. Um, and I also um, take opportunities to present and, and speak um, sort of locally here um, in my own hometown at um, sort of the local pain clinic at their pain education seminars and uh, just any opportunity like this, Ben, to sort of get out there and talk about um, what it's like living with pain, both for people and um, on the healthcare provider side. And when I'm not doing that, I do have a, a full-time job, uh, a civil engineer technologist, and I work as the director of special projects for a civil construction company. Yeah, and, you know, I've heard both of you guys speak um, a few times, and I've always... In fact, I was your warm-up act this year at San Diego. You uh, were. Mm -hmm. I had to go on at, like, half past eight in the morning um, <laughs> to kind of get the stage ready for you guys, get the crowd warmed up, and then you 
swept in on on, on my kind of on my blaze of glory, didn't you? <laughs> we we did. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and probably upstaged me a little bit, which I haven't forgiven either of you for yet. It might. Take, <laughs> it's still a bit raw, if I'm honest. Um, no, sure. and, and and I think that you know that I get so much from listening to other people's perspective on pain. You know, I get to listen to lots and lots of healthcare providers in, in all different forms and hear their opinions and, you know, give my opinion, which I'm probably a little bit too free with. But at the same point, I think we really, really need to have multiple perspectives um, from people who are living with pain, from people who've recovered from pain and who can share their, you know, articulately share their experiences um, with us kind of healthcare professionals. And I think it's one of the things that's probably helped me understand and grow as a therapist, um, you know, apart from all the kind of, you know, we learn all about this bones and ligaments and tendons and all this crap. And then you realise after all, a lot of that stuff, you know, doesn't matter as much as as the kind of the stories and the, and the narratives that people have to tell you. So look, that's exactly what I'd like to, where I'd like to go today. I'd like to kind of you know, just get a, an idea. Well, I, I would like to, I would like the listeners to hear some different perspectives um, today and, and maybe have some takeaways that they can go into clinic with. I would like to say Monday morning, but that might not be possible in the middle of this crazy time that we're in. But I'd like people to go away with, with, a, with a different perspective and, and maybe some different views in on the way that they can work with and deal with people and that's always what's um, kind of enlightened me so much about talking to you guys so do you think you could just tell tell us a little bit about your kind of journey um with with your painful problems and some of the things that have kind of helped you along the way because i think they're going to be really helpful for people to hear i don't mind which one of you goes first someone dive in joe you can go first Oh, you're such a gentleman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so my journey was incredibly unexpected. What I, I imagine most people's journeys into to chronic pain are, are unexpected. But for me, it didn't start with, with a big accident or a big traumatic injury or something like that. I just stepped off the fire engine and felt a twinge in my hip. So I had missed the step getting out of the cab. So went straight from cab to ground and kind of which was probably about three feet and landed on my, my right leg, um, still upright and just felt a twinge in my right hip, but it was just a twinge and it, it wasn't that big of a deal. And I still ran into the emergency room, um, where I had to get a, a clipboard that I had left. And I ran back to the engine and, and still worked for another couple of weeks before I went and saw our occupational doctor, because that twinge kind of, um, didn't get any better and, and was starting to get a little bit worse. And then that, set me on this whole path of, of workers' compensation. So went to our occupational doctor, got some muscle relaxants, and was sent to physical therapy, where I was given explanations for my pain that, in retrospect, didn't make a lot of sense, that it was hip weakness. And um, so it was all about, like, strengthening the hip and about core stability. But at that time that this happened, um, I was a firefighter, and I was incredibly fit and strong. Um, I was a heavy lifter. i I was a total gym rat where I could spend four hours in the gym after getting off work. Um, and so I was deadlifting twice my, more than twice my body weight at that time. So in retrospect, I'm like, it really couldn't have been a muscle weakness or a core instability issue. Um, but that was the, the approach that was taken. And not surprisingly, I didn't, I didn't get better. Um, so my OC doc just sent me to another physical therapist. I kind of had the same experience. Um, and over the course of about five months, not only did the pain get worse, I was starting to lose function as well. Um, and it came to a day where I realized how much difficulty I was having just getting on the fire engine because I couldn't flex my right hip enough to raise my leg up to get on the tailboard or get on the sideboard um, and realized I was becoming you know, a danger to, to my crew, to the, the public, to myself, because I couldn't do my job in the same way that I could have before. So I went off work and that was that was when things really kind of got got dark for me because then I was separated from my my fire family, as we call it. I was no longer going to the station where I used to work 24, 48, 72, even sometimes 96 hour shifts. Um, I had 
was used to spending more time with my crew than I was spending time with my husband. And then suddenly I was home all the time and I was separated from, from my, my crew and in this identity that I had had for myself that before all this, if you had said, you know, how would you describe yourself? I would have answered, I'm a firefighter. And to me that encapsulated everything that I was. And then I was suddenly, you know, off work and no longer that thing. So that was really disruptive and, and, um, kind of life and self upending. And during this time, um, because I was in the workers' compensation system in California and the U.S., um, your investigated, like your integrity is investigated before your pain is investigated. So I went about four months without receiving any care whatsoever while those investigations were taking place. And so I wasn't even given bad information at that time. I was given no information. So I had no explanation for why this pain was getting worse, no path forward to to, that I could see that this was going to get better. Um, and it was just a really difficult time. I became very withdrawn, very isolated. Sitting was my most difficult activity. So that, that meant no driving. Um, and no driving meant that I couldn't go anywhere, that I did, couldn't go to the store, that I couldn't go meet a friend for coffee or a drink, um, that I couldn't go to the movies or out to dinner with my husband. So life became very, very small during that time too. Um, ultimately, I had injections. And then about a year after that, or just over a year after that twinge happened, I had surgery. Um, I was finally given about 10 months in a diagnosis of femoral acetabular impingement. Um, and surgery was recommended by my surgeon because that's what surgeons do. But my surgeon was actually quite wonderful. He was a, a terrific human being and was actually the one that set me on a different path forward um, a couple years post-op. But So I had surgery. And what looking back now, what is so alarming to me was when I was weighed in for my surgery so that they could determine, you know, how much anesthesia to use, what, what cocktail they put together for that. I weighed 110 pounds, which I don't know what that is across the pond, um, which was 50 kilos. I think it, it was 30 pounds less than nearly 30 pounds less than what I had weighed when I went off work. So I had lost a tremendous amount of weight and my yeah. mom had gone through my, my medical records to see when I last weighed that. And it was in the fourth grade. Oh, wow. So when I had that surgery, I was the same size that I had been in fourth grade when I was 11 years old. And now I was a woman in my early 30s. Um, and so I didn't look like myself at that time. When I looked in the mirror, I didn't even see myself. You know, I was this small, fragile, frail broken person that I did not recognize. And, and it was such a far fall from being that firefighter who was strong. I mean, I had huge biceps who prided myself in being ripped and being able to hang with the guys. And if I could outlift the guys, that's, you know, that was what I prided myself most in. Um, so when I had that surgery, then I was this person that I didn't recognize. And I had been away from work for a long time. And I was so like life was just so, so different. And so, um, it, it was just very distressing at that time, but I had full confidence that the surgery was going to fix me and set me right and get me back to who I was before. Um, and as you can imagine, that's not what happened. So I went for another couple of years after that surgery, um, staying within that workers' compensation system in that traditional kind of biomedical biomechanical model, um, where I was diagnosed with all sorts of things post-op like um, SI joint dysfunction. I was diagnosed with all, diagnosed in quotes, with all sorts of movement yeah. dysfunctions and yeah. um, all of these things that had to be corrected. And so I would do them to the nth degree. I would correct my posture, correct my movement to the nth degree. And I became very, very controlling around how I sat, how I stood, how I laid, how I moved. And, and none of that helped over time. And I went back to work, not as a firefighter. I couldn't go back to work as a firefighter, but I went back to work in a civilian position for a couple of years. And I don't really even remember those years. Like when I look back at that time, it's very kind of dark. Drew Letter, who wrote this wonderful paper on the paradoxes of pain, um, calls it a malignant mist. And that's kind of what that time is like for me. Like I can't really see it. It's all shrouded by this malignant mist of pain. Um, and, and I just... I wasn't getting any better. And I, I was stayed, I was still super small. And, um, 
and all of that was just very, very upsetting to me. But my surgeon, so a couple of years after my surgery, it was, it was he who pretty much said, he never once made me feel that my pain was not real. He never once made me feel that, that the surgery not working was my fault. He always listened very compassionately and, and just, he was just a human to another human. Every single appointment that I had, he never had, you know, a file or a computer in front of him. We always just talked and he, and he was wonderful. And he was, he was the best healthcare pro- professional that I had during this time. And he said essentially that my pain was very real, but that within the system that I was in, the workers' compensation system in particular, that I was not going to get the help that I needed within that system and that I had to get out and essentially find my own way forward. Um, and so that was what I did. Eventually, I got out of the workers' compensation system, which took two years pretty much, um, so that I could take charge of my own, my own care. Um, and I went back to graduate school and studied human movement because I was a peer fitness trainer for us. So I was very into movement and lifting and all of those things. And I thought I was still in that belief that I had to correct all this movement. And if I could just do that better, then I would be out of pain. So I studied human movement, but my research focus was pain science. And it was learning more about the biology of pain and the complexity of pain um, that really helped me to to see a path forward, to kind of see a light through that malignant mist, see a light in that darkness um, that I could then kind of follow out of the that chaos of pain or that abyss of pain. And um, that was that was what changed kind of everything for me, was just understanding my pain differently, not having such damaged-based notions of what pain is, um, and also feeling through what I was learning more empowered to do things on my own to change my experience and to get back to living life. I had been so withdrawn from life. You know, it was like I was in this holding pattern above my life for so long, just waiting to go back to normal so that I could start living again. Um, and it was it was actually in the starting to live again and, and get back to the things that mattered to me and reconnect with all of the things I had become so disconnected from um, that that things started to change and my pain started to change. Yeah, I mean, that sounds, you know, I think there's so much valuable information that, that anyone, whether you're a healthcare professional or you're someone in pain, um, can get from listening to your story there. Just the, you know, the, 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 the way that we can hear about the emotions that you go through, we can hear about the changes, not in, not so much in pain, you really didn't talk a lot about pain, but very much about how it had this huge effect on your life and your identity. And I think that probably a lot of people can um, identify with that, which I think is a very, very powerful thing. Um, Keith, could you give us a little bit of a rundown of, of your journey, please? Uh, certainly. And and just like to mention, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity as well to hear um, Joe tell her story. And every time I hear it, I take something new from it. And there's always just a little piece of me that uh, just feels it right in my heart. So, Joe, I always appreciate when you share like that. So thank you. Um, it, what I find interesting is, is um, you know, Joe and I, our, our introductions or into these journeys of living with pain started off differently, but there's a number of underlying similarities there. So for me, um, it started when I was uh, 16. It was August of 1986. So um, I, I was involved in a fairly significant motor vehicle accident. Um, was the result of going out uh, camping with friends all night, and despite um, you know trying to make good decisions, I made poor ones. I was uh, drinking most of the night, and then I got very little sleep and at 16, not understanding life in general, let alone, um, you know, driving a car. I'd only had a, a driver's license for a few months. I didn't know that you could fall asleep behind the wheel. And that's ultimately what happened. And as I was driving back to town, it's in a rural part of central British Columbia, um, as I was sound asleep, the car exited the highway and uh, it was on an elevated curve. And the car rolled down the bank end over end. And, um, was only wearing a lap belt because it was an older car, a 1972 Duster, and didn't have the shoulder restraint on. And due to falling asleep, sliding down in the car and the rolling action of the car, um, it suffered um, rather significant interior, um, in, um, abdominal wall trauma. The seatbelt internally tore through my, my abdominal wall, uh, my large and small bowel, and, and into my stomach. And um, 
and it was um it, it was nearly fatal and and if it wouldn't have been for somebody who'd see, seen the car exit the highway um that's where i would have ended my life at the bottom of this bank um so so you know like i say talk about you know joe and i our story's a little different in how we uh, entered into this um the the underlying issues following that are, I think are very um, similar in some sense. So for me, uh, it initially involved a number of surgeries post-accident, the initial car accident uh, trauma surgery, and, you know, a couple of weeks in ICU, and then multiple follow-up surgeries over the months and even the next few years due to um, further repairs that needed to be done and then ongoing complications because there was significant interior, you know, damage to myself, um, to the bowels, and I had a colostomy, it was reversed, and then I had a number of um, bowel issues that needed surgical repair. And so worked through those for the first, you know, few years, but it, weaving all through that, there was always pain, but I always chalked it up to things were still broken inside of me, they were fixing. And then it came to a point probably three years or so after the accident when um, biomedically and surgically everything had been repaired and I still had this ongoing, persistent, nagging, irritating, terrible pain that would at times would just flare up and cause all sorts of problems. And I was really confused by it, um, but thinking that they just hadn't fixed me enough. And I was told, I think it was about 19, by my family doctor, um, he had said, you know, the surgeons had fixed everything that they can. There's nothing wrong with me anymore, and it's all in my head. And, and that was my introduction at 19 years old into this confusion that I stumbled through for the next number of years trying to figure out what was wrong with me because I've been told by a doctor who ultimately, you know, in a hierarchical medical system is always the, the one who is the expert and has the answers. And especially when you're a kid, um, you're told it, there's nothing wrong and you're essentially making it up that, that didn't reconcile in my brain with what I felt was this real pain. So I couldn't, I didn't understand how I could be making something up that felt so real that could drive me to my knees and bring me to tears um, requiring me to be brought into the emergency room like multiple times by my family, by my friends for pain control. And in my head, I'm trying to figure out what is wrong with me. Like, how can I have this real pain, but nothing wrong with me? And in the, in the late 80s and the early 90s, probably everywhere in the world, definitely in, in Canada, the healthcare system was, was completely not able to deal with any kind of persistent pain issue. So uh, unless there was an issue that was you know, identifiable that could be fixed, really not well treated. There was no um, treatment plans. There was no continuity of care. And the best I would get through these pain flare-ups was, um, you know, some pain control in the ER. And going into an ER or emergency room when you're in chronic pain is probably the worst place you can go. It's a very stigmatizing, demoralizing, depressive, terrible experience. But when you have nothing left, it's all that you have. So I kept lurching through the medical system on my own, trying to find somebody who could do the next right procedure or intervention to just fix this. Because I just, in similar to Joe, I always thought I just needed to find the right doctor to fix this. They just hadn't done enough. Um, at that point, I'd never thought anything was on me. I just felt I needed to find somebody in the system and needed to fix it. So that led to a number of um, other, you know, different surgeries, multiple needle type interventions of nerve blocks and just about anything I could get my hands on to. And, and I, I dealt with some very well-intentioned practitioners who were like, well, I think I can help you. And most of them would do their sort of intervention. And when it didn't really work, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. But no direction given after that. You were just sort of exited out of their care and, thrown, and tossed really to the street and left to figure it out on your own. So I continued to search and look for somebody and um, ultimately, uh, over the years, that led me to a, a practitioner who I was doing some nerve block injections with that ultimately didn't work as well, referred me to a, um, an, in, another pain clinic, a larger one, um, for uh, consideration something called spinal cord uh, stimulation. And, and it was a really backhanded referral. I mean, he, he had tried his interventions, um, these nerve blocks that didn't really work, and it wasn't like, well, you know, I think your next plan is this. He was like, well, I don't know if you've heard of this thing. It's called spinal cord stimulation. And I don't really know if I want somebody going into my spinal cord. It was this really sort of backhanded referral that didn't make me feel very confident. But ultimately, um, 
decided to give it a try. And, and, and that's an important part for me because it was that referral that from 86 to 2004, I was this lurching, stumbling, fighting, lots of fighting. I was just continuing to fight my way through things. Um, and when I was referred to this clinic, it was the first time I had a, sort of a humanist, compassionate connection with a doctor. Um, and, and this was the first time that I was told that my pain was real and that I was believed. And up until then, I, I had doctors who would treat me, but never connected with me as a person. It was always a case. It was like, okay, you're, you're Meldrum, you're case number whatever, and we're going to do this procedure. And when it doesn't work, well, then away you go. So to then connect with, first of all, an individual um, who said, you know, we believe you, and then to be part of a team that believed me and was focused on working with me, that was the change for me where I started to go down a different path where I was able to start to learn more about sort of the complexity of pain because they started to talk to me about that, how it's not just biomedical, there's so much more to it. It was an extremely important intersection in my life because up until then it was all about the fighting and looking for the right answer and just having to have the right surgery the next procedure and it was all everybody else's fault. They just hadn't worked hard enough or they hadn't found the right solution and I never really saw much of it as my responsibility other than absolutely convinced that I wasn't going to let this, this accident be a defining point in my life. I was going to show the world that this wasn't going to hold me back. And that led me to make some sort of poor decisions and some poor career decisions to try and do things with my life that it just, my body physically wasn't able to do due to the trauma of the injuries. But I was just so angry at what had happened that I wasn't going to let it hold me back. So that, that, that validation and that connection and being treated as a human um, was really the start for me to go down a different path where I was able to, like I say, learn more about the complexity of pain and how to live better with it and what my role is in it. But it was really finding that connection and dealing with a healthcare team and starting to deal with people as a, as a human being and not just a case. So, Yeah, I mean, you can really, you know, although you have different genesis of, of, of your painful problems, you can really hear a similarity in, in what you kind of needed as a catalyst to some degree to kind of set, set you on your on your way. And um, I think that's a really powerful lesson for any healthcare professional to hear, you know, that these sometimes it's about being the best diagnostic person or being the best technician or being the best person at a certain technique. And, you know, from hearing both of your stories, it really rams home the, 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 uh, the idea that really it's about, you know, being more of a catalyst. It's about um, you know, working with people and validating people and, and and making a connection with people. But, you know, we, we're not really taught those things, if I'm being honest, Keith. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know. So. Yeah. And, and I would say, especially for me, going back to, you know, to the to the mid 80s and the 90s and not being a healthcare practitioner, but it was clear to me that everything was everybody I dealt with was very focused in on fixing the problem within their scope of practice or what they knew. And, and I, I dealt with some very um, well-meaning, well-intentioned, probably very bright healthcare providers, but it was such a narrow focus when the thing that they did, and they did really well um, as, as you know, clinical experts, when it didn't work for me, they were just simply left with, they didn't know what to do. There was no, um, you know, in other chronic diseases, uh, and this is not, this maybe a terrible parallel, but, you know, um, when you're entered into, if you have diabetes or other chronic illness, there's there's a bit of a plan now. With pain back then, and probably even to this day, it's if if person A can't help you, I don't know what to do. You know, Joe was told, well, you're gonna have to get out of this system and and find, you know, you have to help yourself. Um, it's essentially what you're left to do because there's nobody there to help guide you through this path. You just try and figure it out on your own because the clinicians are very technical. I fixed this. Uh, I felt I was never a, a person and I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I never felt like I was a human being to them. I just felt like I was another case file. And when they weren't able to help me, it was like, well, okay, you need to just basically go find somebody else and I can't help you find them. Yeah. I, I think if we look at things from a traditional educational perspective as, as, a, as a therapist, it, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about you test, you find it, and then you correct it in some way. You know, there isn't a discussion of, um, you know, the, the things like validation, connection, alliance and all these other things. They're 
they, they just don't even enter into the conversation, um, or certainly didn't when I um, went through my, my degrees a, a few years ago. Um, but what I think is hugely valuable is is hearing your journey and your story and what really mattered to you. And and hopefully that can resonate with some, some other people listening. So look, I'm going to ask you some cheesy questions. Um, I, I'm going to throw this to Gilletta. What I, I would like to know what kind of things were your worst moments in healthcare. And I, I don't know if it, you know, I don't want to name names or, or anything like that, but more just what were some of the things that you feel really negatively affected you in your journey? Yeah, and and Keith really touched upon them all. I actually made some notes while he was talking. Um, the, the first, I think, is the lack of continuity of care that Keith spoke to, because I definitely experienced that, too. And it, like he said, like everyone's looking at your problem at your at, at you as if all that matters is the problem that you're presenting with. So for me, it was the pain in my hip. And they're looking at it through a very narrow lens of how how they were trained and they don't see anything else. They don't they don't see the person that that problem exists within. Um, and then when they can't fix it with whatever tools they have at their disposal, then they're just then there's just you're left with there's nothing that can be done. And then you have to kind of find that next person. Um, and that makes things really, really difficult. And you're just kind of feel like you're just punted to the next person. Like you're just this this difficult patient or challenging patient rather than it being considered this is a difficult, you know, condition or a challenging pain condition. It's all the blame is, is put on you. You didn't succeed in this treatment. It wasn't that the, the treatment failed. It was that you failed, that this treatment should have worked because this is how I was trained and, and this is what I was told works for pain. Um, so then it's all put on you and then you have to find the next person and there's no continuity of care. Then you have to share your story again, um, which which often you don't even get to share. Like our our narratives, our stories get usurped by the medical and the clinical narrative. We become that file that gets passed from one clinician to the next. We become a series of pain scales and the quality and quantity of your pain and all of these body charts with circles on it and hash marks and all of these things. And then that becomes your story and you get totally lost as the person that is living with that pain. And it just becomes, for me, it became about a painful hip. Um, and, and we're nowhere in that story anymore. And for me being, when I finally had that surgery and I was at 110 pounds. So my surgeon, he had only seen me for a couple months at that point. For him, it wasn't alarming to see me at that weight because he didn't know me when I first went off work. He didn't know me when I was, you know, super strong and ripped and, and built. And if, if he had, if he had seen me then and then seen me on the day of that surgery, he would have been alarmed. The guys that I worked with at the fire department thought I was dying when I went back to work because I looked so different from when I went off work. Um, to the point where people that I knew, like they had to prep other firefighters to say, when you see here, you're going to be shocked. Right. Yet my medical care providers never had that same experience of shock or that this is alarming. This is something that we should probably look into more. Why does she look so much different than she did before? Um, and the other thing, too, is like pain becomes totalizing, which is another quote from Drew, Drew Letter. It became all I could think about and focus on. And then finding the solution for it so that I could get back to my life was so very important because until this this enemy pain was was you know sought out and figured out um, and eradicated or fixed or repaired or you know replaced whatever could be done that was my my sole focus in life to the to the loss of everything else I couldn't focus on anything else and then when you go through all of the, you get punted from from healthcare pra practitioner to another one to another one to another one, and you fail all of the treatments that they give you. Um, all you're left with is, then is that your pain must not be real, because we can't find it. We can't find it on a scan or in a blood test or on an X-ray. Um, we can't find it through exploratory surgery, so it it must not be real. And then you're just left to your own devices. Like, told, I was told by a very kind and awesome surgeon who was 
who is one of the tops in his field in orthopedic surgery on hips, essentially that I just had to get out of the healthcare system and find my own way forward. And that's, that is such a broken system. Um, and there's a lot of good people within that broken system. And a lot of, a lot of really caring, compassionate healthcare professionals who are just doing what they were taught, but what they were taught is so not aligned with what our current understanding of pain is. Um, and I, I think that, that that's the thing that, that affected me the most and, and frustrates me the most. There's a, a quote by Eric Cassell, who wrote this in the 1980s, um, in a, a paper called the, uh, what's it called? Let me grab it real quick. The Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Medicine. And he wrote, it is not possible to treat pain as something that happens solely to the body without thereby risking damage to the person. And I think that just summarizes all of it for me. He said sickness and I replaced it with pain, but it is not mm-hmm. possible to treat pain as something that happens solely to the body without thereby risking damage to the person. And I think a lot of persons are damaged when we take this approach that, that pain is just something within the body that we need to address. Um, and we forget about the person that that pain is, is happening within. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that that, you know, but again, listening to both of you, you can really hear that it needs to be more than just this bit of your body. And But I, I am going to say that I think sometimes there is a danger with pain as well, that we get very much into the idea of pain and we still need to see the person as well. So I still think that there's there's a, a bit of a way to go here to, to kind of on our journey as therapists to kind of you know, be more patient or, or, or person-centered. And I think it's like a process that that along the way we're kind of going through. So, Keith, what would you say was, um, was, was some of your, you know, I know that you've already kind of pointed to some of them, but if you had to kind of pinpoint one or two things that you really found difficult or, or, or your worst moments in healthcare, what would you say um, they were? Um, yeah, so there, there's, there's a few and... and um you know the the quote that that Joe just uh, read, I think, is so so impactful because you know I go back to the day um, standing in my GP's office when you know he said you know everything's been fixed and there's nothing wrong with you and it's all in your head. Um, you know, talk about you know um, doing harm. Uh, the the words that people hear are so impactful. And here I am, you know, I'm 50 years old now, and I heard that when I was 19, and I can still picture that moment in my life. And and, and I've tried to grow as a person over time and, and think back, well, maybe, you know, as a GP and at that point, you know, pain was so misunderstood. He didn't didn't know any better. But still, um, that's a terrible thing to say to somebody. And even if you don't know, a little bit of compassion and empathy is, you know, we're not too sure. But um, and and but treating the person as a human being, I, I did not feel like I was a human being, uh, a person living with pain until 2004 when when I had a validating moment. Up until then, I just felt like a, a case file in, in, in the healthcare system. And as Joe talked about, you know, you're, you're sort of bounced around and you're left on your own to find um, your own help. Well, when you're, when you're in some of the depths of the worst times of your life with this pain and you're not able to work and your world has been turned upside down, it's pretty hard to be um, functional and critical and rational and try and search these things out. Yeah. For me, I was desperate to find, um, you know, the right person to just fix this. Because in my mind, I was sure that it was just they hadn't done the right surgery. I didn't understand the complexity of pain. I didn't understand how my life um, work stresses when I was able to work informed my pain and, and could make it worse. Um so that that lack of compassion and humanity and treating somebody as a human being, and it's okay. I understand it's pretty tough when you're dealing with a surgeon. A surgeon isn't a psychologist. I don't advocate that people work so far outside of their scope. But I think it's important that everybody understands that this is a complex issue, and when it doesn't fit within their particular technical expertise, that's okay. It's okay to say, and I even had one, my, the surgeon who did my original trauma surgery was one who said to me, I can't operate on you anymore. I'll just make it worse. Um, but again, no and but. So here's what we do. 
So to, to stop looking through such a narrow lens and to be able to appreciate that this is such a complex thing that is so much more than a biomedical issue. And, and I say that I'm still a patient in active medical care. I don't I don't negate any of that. I, I will be having surgeries again. So I don't dismiss that at all. But it's the totality of people's experience and how, for me, from 86 to 2004, it was never considered. It was just, you're, you're a you're a case, and if I can't help you, then really, I don't know what to do with you. It is so dehumanizing and demoralizing and depressive and leads to some pretty dark, angry days. Um, and I think just treating somebody as a human being with compassion and empathy, and, and sometimes all you need to do is just give them a little space to just be and vent and feel um, is important. Yeah, I, th I think sometimes there's this perspective in healthcare that, you know, if you're a normal human being who laughs and cracks a joke and does things, you're not being professional in some ways. You know, mm -hmm. there's that kind of professional veneer of, uh, of what you're meant to be. Um, and, and I think that sometimes that kind of dehumanizes uh, a little bit the experience. But I also think there's a kind of a there, there's also this kind of idea and pressure put on people that that's the way that you're meant to act. And I think that we do need to see it as just people having chats and conversations like we have all done over a few drinks in San Diego. And I, and I think that maybe healthcare, I've always said this, healthcare should be a little bit more like going down the pub um, in the way that we communicate, you know, and that people are just people um, in, in, in a different environment. You're still two people. You're just in a different right. contrived, mm -hmm. contrived environment. It shouldn't change who you are, your personality, you're caring for another person just because you put on a pair of chinos and a, and a polo shirt, right? So, <laughs> right. so, but people feel sometimes like that's not being professional. You know, there's that professional veneer. So I, I certainly think that that's something that, um, that I've, you know, probably worked on to try and lose. And then I kind of think I've gone too far the other way and I need to get it back. And <laughs> you're just kind of pinballing around. So, Gilletta, what would you say has then helped you the most on your journey along the way? If you could pinpoint something that really made a huge difference for you, um, what, what would that be? So I, I, always, I, I have like one distinct kind of turning point in, in my story as well. Like for, for Keith, it was being told that he was believed. And in some sense, I had a similar experience with Lorimer Mosley, which sounds funny, but when I was in graduate school, I was, um, we, we had to interview someone in our field. Well, I didn't know what my field was going to be because I, I was no longer a firefighter, which I had thought I was going to be until I retired. Um, so I'm like, I'm in pain. So I'm going to interview someone in the field of pain. And I emailed Lorimer Mosley and it to see if he would be okay with doing a Skype like we're doing right now um, for the school project that I had to do. And he agreed. And during that, the conversation that I had with him, you know, I just kind of, I was grilling him about pain science because I really wanted to understand it. And I really wanted to find, I still was looking for that kind of one, one thing that was going to fix me, that, that was going to be like the aha moment where I was like, ah, oh, that, that solves everything. Now I'm going to be back to, to normal. But through that conversation, I think we talked for about 45 minutes. We just had a conversation, which is like kind of what you're talking about um, just now. And and he just listened. He listened to my story without trying to fix it, without telling me what I should do about it. He just listened. And he was very human and told me some of his own story, you know, his own path into getting into pain science and how he became a neuroscientist. And, and we just had a conversation, two humans having a conversation about, you know, the complexities of being human and being a human in pain. And at that very end of that that call, I asked him what the one thing he would want people in pain to know, to move forward with. And he gave me a science answer at first. He's like, I, I should give a science answer first. But he's like, my real answer is to love and be loved. And it was a profound moment for me because at that time, uh, I'm going to get choked up again. I didn't feel, I didn't feel very lovable. I didn't feel like I was a person worthy of love anymore. I didn't really like the person that I had become through these years of pain. Um, I, I just wasn't the same person that I was before. And I was, I was short tempered and, and 
frustrated and quiet and sullen and withdrawn and disconnected from so much of what mattered to me. And I just wasn't myself and wasn't feeling very worthy and didn't feel very valued or valuable at that time. And just by having that conversation, sorry, he showed me through just talking to me that I was a person of worth, a person worth listening to, that what I had to say was of value and was important and was real. Um, and that was profound. That was that was so needed. And it was not something that I got in my care. I mean, I had to get it from a neuroscientist to, to, on Skype from Australia. Mm. And But it was such a turning point in my life, just that that recognition that I was so worthy, you know, that I was a, a person who could still be valued and valuable and could still contribute, that I, that I was still me changed, but that I was still me and that I could, I could reconnect with the things that I valued. I could reconnect with, with all of the things that mattered to me that I had disconnected from. And it was from, from that moment on, I really kind of took a different approach where I started to get back to living my life with pain rather than trying to be rid of pain first before I could get back to my life. And that changed everything for me. So, so it, it was being listened to, being treated as a human being, being validated. He never once questioned my pain. He never interrogated me about my pain to know more. He just listened and we had a conversation and that was, that was just such a powerful and profound moment for me. Yeah, I mean, you, you can, I can tell, you know, what what a powerful moment that is, and um, it's amazing that you you managed to find that that catalyst for for change for you. And uh, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people out there who re- who will really really benefit from hearing those points you you put together there, and just kind of, um, you know, what really mattered to you and what really made a difference. Um, Keith, what would you say that your you know that what would your um, thing that really, really helped you. Uh, I, I, I think you probably touched on it, but if you could just kind of um, reiterate, that'd be great. Certainly, and and, and again, it's it's very interesting how um, you know the experiences that Joe and I have had are, are, are well, somewhat different, or also somewhat very, very similar. And um, so for me, and I touched on it earlier, it's that validation, you know, eighty-six to two thousand and four. And for me, because I was sixteen when I started this, I had actually—I don't, I don't think I had an identity to lose. Um, that might sound a little bit of a stretch, but um, you're—you know—at sixteen, you, I thought it was all grown up. I didn't—I wasn't. So I was still developing as a person. And so when I had this accident, that's all I knew. Um, I knew it just kept screwing up everything that I kept trying to do. And that led to, like I said, some terrible decision making on things that I was going to do to show the world. And when I say the world, probably myself, that I wasn't going to let this, this thing hold me back. And so I just kept putting myself in terrible situations, fighting through the medical system, all of these doctors who didn't validate me, who looked at me sideways, it can't be real. A lot of the stuff that Joe touched on, you know, um, you're not trying hard enough. It's you. It's not me. And so to come to that point of validation, and for me in 2004, being referred to yet another um, clinic and going through another medical you know, history where you can recite it by rote and you're not even listening to yourself because you're just rattling off the questions that are being asked. And, and, and the intake doctor um, who stopped partway through and just looked at me and said, you know, it's okay, we believe you was was that same watershed moment I would say that that Joe just shared it was just it was just everything just stopped for me right there just everything stopped and the 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 fighting and the walls that I had built around myself um I think started to come down because and he said it in a way that was just so just genuine and real and not a pat answer but it just connected with me and my soul and it it changed the path that I went on because I, I just I was started that allowed me to be open to as Joe had said learning how to live with pain. I it, it didn't happen overnight, but it was the beginning of the process where I realized I'm, I I've got to stop searching to find the panacea that's going to be the right procedure that I'll wake up from and then the pain will be magically gone. To how can I learn to live better with this pain? Because up until that point, I just I didn't think it was possible. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous that you can live um, with pain on a daily basis. So that validation is 
terribly, terribly important. And I, and, and I don't know if I hadn't have had that moment, I don't know what my path would look like today. I'm very fortunate to be where I am um, in my life. And I don't know what it would look like if I didn't have that defining moment. And it truly is a defining moment. I think we all have a few in our lives, and that's definitely one for me. And I don't, it doesn't need to be this, just the way Joe shared her story, it doesn't need to be this massive, you know, horns blaring and the, and the doves fly moment. It is just this very personal, quiet moment that happens. And it's, there it is, like right there, things change. And it can happen just to simply any, anybody, that, that validation can come from almost anybody, I would say. And it can be the thing that people grab onto and start to realize that there is there's hope because hope isn't a terrible thing at all, no. and 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 stop the fighting because the fighting doesn't help, and and I say that knowing that when I still have my bad pain days, what do I go to? I want to fight. So it's kind of inherent maybe in most of us, but it allows you to it can allow somebody to focus their attention away from the fighting and the anger and 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 making the pain go away to what can I do to learn to live better with it. So it's I mean if there's any takeaway I ever have, it's just, it's the validation is so important. Yeah. I think it's, sorry, I was going to say, I just think it's so important to recognize too, that receiving that validation, being treated like a person, being treated with, with compassion and this recognition that, that people who are living with pain, it is really fucking difficult. You know, it is Mm -hmm. hard. And just recognizing that and, and being genuine and about that is is so valuable and then receiving that as that person in pain it's like it it frees up capacity for us to yeah, then take in yeah. new information take in yeah. you know the things that people are trying to to tell us about pain or trying to to help us do whether it be you know getting back to movement or getting back to valued activities mm-hmm. or what it, whatever it might be it frees up the capacity to even be able to do that because when you're constantly fighting not just the pain, but also fighting to be seen and heard, that takes up so much of your your mm-hmm. energy, so much of your brain space, so much of who you are as a person, that relieving some of that by being believed and validated, we then have the capacity to, to take on new information and to take on new things. Yeah, you know, it's that you didn't get some magic stretch or you didn't get some magic exercise you know you got some kind of catalyst you know that set you on your way for you for you to be involved and you to do the journey um and i think again that's a a really powerful uh, message that you know i think sometimes therapists as well feel like they have to do something to people you know um, but sometimes being there and being, you know, you, you never know that you're going to be a catalyst in that way. You know, these were obviously special moments, but knowing what can help people, I think, is is very valuable. And, that you know, that the idea of not trying to have an answer or not always trying to fix things is probably a powerful message for, for me to hear, because there's always that kind of pressure that says, well, I've got to find the answer to this. Um, and I don't think that that's always um, very collaborative, you know, and I often think that um, these journeys between therapists and people are um, are, are mostly collaborative, you know, that that, that yeah, yeah. produces the best results. And me and Gillette have talked about this lots. That kind of, you know, the the the, the being collaborative and just being two people and and working together towards a common aim. And I think sometimes that gets a bit missed. So, look, I'm going to ask you one final question. Um, uh, so again, a little bit cheesy, but, uh, I'm good at cheesy questions. I've worked, I've worked really hard to be this cheesy. Uh, it's an art, it's an art form. Um, yeah. if, if you were to have a message for healthcare professionals or clinicians or just people out there trying to help other people in pain, um, what, what, what would that be? You know, if we could boil it down into something, you know, short and, uh, and and kind of snappy, if you like. Although I, I realise that's a really shitty, un, uneasy thing to do. But what 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 might that look like or sound like? For me, I would say listen, listen okay. first, listen like and truly listen, listen to understand that person rather than listening for what you're expecting to hear or what you want to hear, and listen without trying to fix 
with, with just accepting that story as it is and knowing that that story is the right story for that person at this time. And that by being able to, to hold that story and sit with that story, that's what's going to open up the possibility for change and for that story to, to change over time. I, I would absolutely have to agree. It's, and and it, it's that listen and, and just as Joe said, it's like actively listen. Sometimes, and I get it's hard. I mean, as clinicians, as human beings, I think we're wired to want to solve problems mostly. And so it's really hard to not want to jump in there and, and solve it and fix it. But to just give the person that opportunity um, to be heard and not try to rush in to solve it. And and I understand, Ben, that is, you know, because I was this person for years. I was coming to somebody because I was looking them for them to solve it. So that defining moment might not happen right there. But just that listening that might be the seed that is planted for that person because that's what I needed because uh, it didn't happen overnight, but to be validated, to be heard, to just be given an opportunity to tell your, your story and have somebody just receive it um, is the beginning of what I believe can be sort of growth in a new direction. So yeah, I Joe's just said it right there, listen. Yeah, and I think you hit a really good point there, Keith, that sometimes you might meet people and give them something that, that isn't valuable or it is valuable to them, but it might not be what they're looking for at that time. Right. Um, and, and I think that's a really powerful perspective, you know, that, that, that we all need to think about that, you know, sometimes you give you can give really good information to someone who maybe isn't at the right time to receive it. And then other times people might be at a perfect time to receive good information and they receive really crap information. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. so it's kind of, and it shows that that communication and, and, and interaction is, is often a two-way thing, right? It is. And that's why I think it's Very important, so. as Joe talked about, you know, to listen, to engage and see where the person's at and, and to use a terrible um, analogy. But, it, you know, it can be like planting a garden and I'm no gardener, but and again, for me, I needed the seed to be planted and, and, and possibly left because it didn't happen just overnight. It didn't go, oh, there it is. And now everything's great. It was because up to that point, I was so against hearing anything other than you need to fix me. I didn't within 30 seconds go, oh, I get it. Um, but it was planted. And then we came back and it was tended to and it was watered and it was given sunshine and all of that shit. That's a nice, happy story. But it, it needed to be planted to allow it to grow. And that's why, you know, as clinicians and healthcare providers, you need to be open to understanding where people are because it might be here, I'm just going to plant this for you, or they might be at a point where they're ready for that watershed moment. But listening, actively, truly listening to the person, I think will help um, the healthcare provider tune yeah. into that a little more. And I think healthcare <laughs> professionals sometimes can get a bit disillusioned because, you know, that what the information that they think is good is not always received mm -hmm. in the way they want it. Um, and I think that can disillusion healthcare professionals moving forward to other people. You know, it's like, oh, what's the point type of thing. But I think we all need to realise that, you know, it's uh, information doesn't always or, or action or any of it doesn't always have this instantaneous effect. No, especially since you're you're probably trying to counter years mm. and in, in Keith's case, decades of yeah. counter information of yeah. information that there is something that we can find that can be fixed via surgery or a pill or, or mm -hmm. a particular movement or whatever it might be. Yeah. We swim in that sea of the body is a machine that breaks down and can be fixed or the parts replaced or whatever it might be. And we're getting that information from trusted sources too, from mm -hmm. lots and lots of healthcare professionals. Yeah. Um, so it's not like one session is all of a sudden going to change beliefs that you have created over a lifetime. Yeah. And that's why it has to be a conversation and you have to start where that person is, because if you're just I, I just had a um, call with with Mike Stewart for the Genius PT podcast with Carol, Carolyn Van Dyken and, and Susan Quentin. And yeah. he said that education isn't a pouring in, which is how we tend to look at it. We're pouring in information to a person that it's a that it's a drawing from. So you're drawing mm -hmm. things out of the, the person that you're trying to educate. Um, and I, I think that that's beautiful because, and, and I need to take that to heart because I'm a poorer inner, you know, I want yeah. to fire hose you with information that yeah. is going to change your life and your experience. Yeah. I'm going to give it all to you. All of this mm -hmm. stuff that I have learned over years, I want to <laughs> give to you in a 15 minute session. 
Yeah. And, and that's just not how humans work. So we need to think more of that, that drawing out and starting where that person is and understanding that their story, that what they're saying is, is absolutely the right story for that person at that time, because it was created by a lifetime of experiences and memories and history and all of those things. And, and if, if we tell them that they're wrong, you're telling them that as a human being, the life that they lived is wrong. And so that's why it can mm-hmm. be met with resistance. To, mm-hmm. to avoid that resistance, you know, listen first. Listen to what they're telling you and go from there. And instead of trying to replace their narrative with your own or with the scientific narrative or the protection narrative or the, yeah. the predictive yeah. processing narrative yeah. or whatever the narrative of the moment is, and that's what we tend to do. And I tend to do it, too. So I'm not I'm not being critical of others and being you know, self-reflective and, and critical of myself as well, that that we have to be able to receive those narratives without trying to change them and then have a conversation. And then over time, those narratives will change. But it's not going to happen. And I, I or maybe it does happen for some people. But no, but I think yeah. it very rarely happens where it changes within the, within that moment. And I, I think what you brought up there happens so much. That, and I think that it comes back to this idea that you have to do something. So someone tells you their story and you have to explain it through science or you have right. to explain their mm-hmm. experience or the biology of it. And actually, yeah. how can you explain someone else's experience or their journey? Yeah. No need to explain it. But I think there is a feeling that you have to suddenly say, well, this happened because of this happened, this happened. Right. you know, mm-hmm. and I think that it's yep. so valuable to, to kind of learn that maybe you don't have to explain it, you don't have to fix it. Firstly, you just have to hear it. Yep. Yep. Which is hard, which is, mm-hmm. which is hard for us humans, humans to do. Um, yeah. And especially for some, as someone who someone else has come to. You know, that, that you right. feel someone has come to you for a reason and you've got to give them something of value. And maybe it's what we believe is of value that's sometimes misguided or misplaced. Yeah. And, yeah. and I appreciate, you know, it, it is a challenging and, and, you know, being self-reflective. I look back on my own experiences. And like I said earlier, Ben, you know, the number of times I went to, you know, a surgeon or, you know, a pain specialist because I expected I was looking to them to be the one who would do the thing that would make me better. So I probably, if I would have received, you know, anything other than this is what I can do to you, I probably looked at them like they were nuts. But again, that's why it's that planting that that seed. And I appreciate it's a challenging relationship that gets developed. Yeah. And like you say, I think as human beings were wired to want to jump in and fix it. So to to just to listen and to receive that story is, it is important, but I, I get it. It can be a little bit difficult because I was the patient sitting there looking at the doctor, almost like a dog, just with my tongue. Like, what are you going to do to fix this? And if I was told, I'm just going to listen to you, I'm like, well, then screw you. I'm leaving. But, <laughs> you know, it's a developing process. So I get it. I, I appreciate that it can be very, very challenging. If there's any one thing that I think has come out of our conversation so far, it just be just be more human, maybe. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's just about two human beings um, trying to solve the problem or solve the issue or solve the riddle or the conundrum that Mm -hmm. that we're faced with. And I think maybe if we view it in that perspective, um, we may approach it in a different way. And I I love that Keith just said relationship, because I think if you view it as a relationship rather than as I'm I'm going to fix your broken body, that that changes Mm -hmm. the context as well. Like yeah. this is a therapeutic relationship. Yeah. And, and that I, I think changes the, the tenor of it. Well, I think also that maybe places responsibilities on both sides, doesn't it? You mm-hmm. know, yeah. the relationship yes. is about two people having to do things that take us in the same direction rather than one having this kind of hierarchical aspect and giving orders and you have to follow it and, and this, that and the other. And I think that, um, you know, that idea of a relationship probably places a really nice emphasis on the different roles and responsibilities, but going in the same direction. Absolutely, because I, I you know, um, and I, Joe touched on it earlier, I mean, as the person living with pain, I, I mean, I also have a responsibility in this. And that's part of that, that, that relationship that you talk to, I can't give everything over to the healthcare provider and say, you've got to fix this, because it's not what it's about. It's, it's truly working together. But it, it sounds like it took you a while to come to that. Cool. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think it's really valuable, Keith, for other people to hear. That, yeah, you know, I, to this yeah. place, but it's taken you time. It's probably taken mistakes. It's taken lots mm-hmm. of pain. Um, and it's a journey. It is. Yeah, I, I, certain, I mean, looking back on it, I say I wouldn't do it right. There is no right or wrong. There's no playbook. I mean, it, it's the experience. But um, I think as we start to have more conversations like this and and we start to understand more that when people enter into these journeys, I'm not going to say we're going to give them the playbook and say, now you do this and then you do this and you develop a relationship and it's all good. But start to have a conversation. But it is complex. It is ugly. It's kind of shitty and it's frustrating and angry. But you know, life that's life, man. It's not perfect all the time, but (laughs) you you know, it's like the relationship with your spouse. Some days it's great. Some days it isn't. That's the relationship you have to have with the healthcare provider. (laughs) Especially when you're cooped up with them all day. (laughs) (laughs) And I think one other important thing that I want to touch upon too, that was brought up in the, at the San Diego pain summit, especially with Melanie Noel's talk is that we can only do so, so much when we're trying to change an individual's beliefs or narrative. If we don't start addressing those social narratives or the current prevalent medical narratives or biomechanical narratives, it's always going to be an uphill battle to do that. We need to change the water that we're swimming in and, and start addressing how we understand collectively pain. Because as long as those narratives are out there and they're still the prevalent narratives that the body is a machine that that with pain, something is broken that can either be repaired or replaced or realigned. Um, it's it's going to be an uphill battle for all of us. So so we can't put it all on the, the patient that it's their fault for having these beliefs kind of thing or and be frustrated with patients for having these beliefs when, when it's not just patients who have these beliefs. It's healthcare professionals and it's the public in general that have these beliefs mm-hmm. as well. And I think that's an important thing to draw attention to as well. I mean, again, it's a great point. It's that there are such um, big social narratives that are out there that are much bigger than any individual, and they influence us in so many um, different ways. And I think that we have to be be cognizant of that. Guys, look, um, thank you so much for coming to join me. I think that there's been so much really, really good value information, whether you're someone who has pain or whether you're a healthcare professional, or even if you're just an interested listener, you know, I, I think there's so much value in listening to people's stories, especially when they're articulated so well and that you've really kind of explored um, what, what they mean to you and you're able to get that across in, in such eloquent ways. So so thank you so much. Um, I look forward to seeing you both again and having some drinks and some beers. I don't know where that will be in the world. Um, mm-hmm. But they're the things that I look forward to. So, so thank you guys for coming and joining me and I, I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Ben. Likewise. Absolutely. Thank you. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.